this book. Uh, we knew that we wanted to teach through the book of Acts. And so let's, when do you want to start? Well, why don't we start in August when the students come back and when families return from vacation? Sounds great. Now let's divide it all up. Let's take a look at all of the weeks that we have. And so we begin to divide it up. Too many verses here, not enough verses here. This will work well if we keep it all together. We'll have Drew share it. It'll be awesome. And all those things line up. And then we begin to look at how the dates fall. And uh, I love seeing how God uses our planning. Planning is, is, is a good thing, is a, is a very much a necessary thing. I'm just so grateful that our sovereign God is, is by no means in any way, shape, or form um, reduced to the planning of our schedules. And so as we were going through that, I just, I couldn't help but think, and with the book of Acts, we're going to have some, some really difficult texts no matter what. But here we are, right between Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Thanksgiving is that time where we all gather together as family and we just celebrate God's goodness to us and we spend some time talking about the things that we are most grateful for, like it's this very soft, beautiful, tender time. And then Christmas, right around the corner, we're gonna decorate our homes, we're gonna get the lights out, we're gonna start buying presents. What a wonderful, wonderful time. And in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the Advent time, we get Acts chapter eight, verses one through three. Seriously? Like this is the response to Thanksgiving in preparation for Christmas? I I just couldn't help but think, um, if it were up to us, collectively, texts like this we would probably punt pretty often, wouldn't we? I don't know if I want to deal with this. I don't know if I want to deal with this difficult one. We'll, We'll come up with a reason. I don't know if I want to hear it now. You know, it's not the right time of year. When would be the right time? Do we start out the year this way, thinking about the difficulties that the church faced, and then asking ourselves how we can prepare? Like maybe Easter would be a better time for us to deal with it, maybe, since that's when Jesus died. I just, I love the fact that the Bible, in terms of how it presents truth, and under God's sovereign control, we just have to deal with it when it comes, much like life. Difficulties don't take a vacation. Relational tension, hardship, separation doesn't seem to be respecting our calendars, does it? Seems like it just comes. Kind of like life, like the scriptures describe. And you and I have an opportunity to then deal with it as it comes, trusting that God will be the one to provide the strength and the words necessary to endure. Even the Christmas story does this. Like if we hand select when we decide to take this part of the story and then leave that part of the story out, but if we take the story in its entirety, the first couple of chapters of both Matthew and Luke, it's, it's tough. There's the beautiful picture of shepherds and angels and magi come to Herod And then once Herod finds out that another king has been born, he plots to find out where that is. And then he kills those children. And then Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus have to flee for their lives. Merry Christmas? Even the Christmas story has this um, unapologetic, this is the world that we live in, and this is the world that God is redeeming. This is the world that God has not given up on. And this is the kind of world where people who choose to follow him 
actually need his strength. And we have to learn to become increasingly dependent on his strength, not ours. On his strength, not just our circumstances. So between Thanksgiving and Advent, when we get to celebrate the coming of Jesus, may we remember that um, the, the, over, over probably the last 30 or years or so, it became real popular um, in churches and even in community to recognize this fact. I think when I was little, maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but it just seems like over the last number of years, we've been increasingly aware that not everybody's having a good time this kind of year. That there are people that uh, around Thanksgiving and Christmas that are noticing those that are not around. It gets tough. And yet God's word comes in moments like that. Our t- my title for today's message is The Unwelcome and the Unwanted Consequences of the Gospel. When kids get baptized and we, we get a pool out on the south side of the park or north side of the parking lot, it was west side of the parking lot, some side of the parking lot, and we baptize 37 people, that's awesome. When we decorate in here with Christmas trees, that's awesome. When the kids come in, sing a song to us, that's awesome. And then when we find ourselves facing adversity and difficulty for believing in that message and not wavering in speaking the truth, and these three things, what we see the church constantly doing, speaking the truth about ourselves. We're broken people. Like my, my story is, is one of brokenness. My story is one of rebellion. My story is one of sin. The, the truth about all of us, the truth that we're all pretty broken and messed up people, that the Bible teaches everyone is in need of God's grace and God's mercy. The truth about us, the truth about others, and then most importantly, actually, the truth about Jesus that when we reflect on and think about our brokenness, that we find redemption and restoration when we talk honestly about who Jesus Christ is. Now, one would think that once we start talking truthfully about Jesus, that that's when everything will go right or at least go easier. And, and actually, when we look in the book of Acts, it's actually the truth about Jesus Christ, that salvation is found in him alone, that he is the promised Messiah. That is where the disciples and that is where the church is finding the greatest opposition. And that's what started our text. The church dared to stand up and speak the truth about themselves, about others, and most importantly about Jesus. And they faced opposition for that reason. And so this morning, what we're going to look at in those three few verses, and we're going to be looking at a couple of other uh, texts to try to find some understanding. We're going to be in 1 Peter, and we're also going to be in John's gospel today. So John, 1 Peter, and the book of Acts, if you want to just kind of be aware of where those, those texts are as we look at them. We're asking these three questions. Why are God's people persecuted in the first place? Number two, how are God's people persecuted? Because there's a lot of conversations about what persecution really looks like. And we are reading a Bible that seems so different than the world that you and I have here in the Midwest, in Oklahoma. How are God's people persecuted? And then lastly, how does persecution affect the mission of the church? First of all, why are God's people persecuted? I stumbled across this quote, and I later found out that um, the one who wrote it is by no means a Christian. He's kind of mostly an unknown person. 
but he actually is somebody that was in, living in the 1800s in England who was a, very much a free thinker and wanted to move people beyond the natural and normal cultural restraints of religion and society at that time. But he still had a great comment. Like, it's good for us to learn from people that have very bold statements. And here's what he said about persecution. Again, not even a Christian. But he said this about persecution. Persecution is the compliment paid by a threatened lie to a conquering truth. Persecution is the compliment. That's kind of an interesting way to look at it. It's the, um, hey, I want to at least recognize this is what you're doing. Congratulations. It's a compliment paid by a threatened lie, by by. By a, by a falsehood, by something that is broken, by something that is inherently deceptive. And when a lie is exposed, when a deception is revealed, interestingly enough, the response is one to lash out. The most natural and normal response to a lie being exposed, to deceit being revealed, is to fight I mean, honestly, it's that flee or fight response. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is a fight response. And when that lie about Jesus, that he wasn't the Messiah, the lie about Jesus and who he was, that these aren't the true people of God, that as that truth began to be exposed by the light of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, by this growing community, instead of them going, wow, we got this Jesus thing wrong. We really got this new movement that God is doing in the power of Jesus Christ. We got all of this wrong. We should just accept this. No, they decide to double down, to dig in, and to fight. Persecution is a compliment paid by a lie that is being exposed to the truth that will conquer it. Which means that when, when we look at our lives and when we look at circumstances, and the Bible actually teaches us, like, we shouldn't be surprised. Like, why are God's people being persecuted? It, it's not because somehow we're doing something that's bad. That's usually when we face difficulty. Well, I must be doing something wrong. I must be doing something bad. Well, obviously, that's not it. So why am I caring for those? Why am I trying to share about eternal hope and about the possibility of eternal damnation and it being met with such fierce opposition. Obviously, I'm touching on a nerve. Obviously, I'm exposing something that does not want to be revealed for its true nature. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Jesus steps front and center in terms of the life of the disciples because their mindset would have been when the Messiah comes and the kingdom comes, then everyone's going to jump on board. And if there's one thing we learned last week in Stephen's speech is that if the Jewish people somehow thought that they would just openly embrace God's plan and purpose for their lives, then they don't know their own history very well. If there's one thing that Stephen did a great job of, and Drew did a pretty good job himself, but what Stephen did a great job of is revealing Israel's history, their continual failure. We didn't recognize Joseph when he came and we, 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 we attacked him. And we didn't recognize Moses when he came and we attacked him. We Actually, all of the prophets we attacked. 
That's what happened when scared and lying and deceitful and rebellious people, they fight or they flee. And the Bible describes just a lot of opposition, a lot of fighting. And so Jesus wants his disciples to know that what they are about to see, this is in John 15, so it's near the end of Jesus' life, that what they're about to see happen to him, that this isn't an anomaly. This isn't somehow we've stepped into some kind of twilight zone episode. No, this is what happens when the light exposes darkness. Verse 18, if the world hates you, and that's going to be a definite, yeah, it does. If the world hates you, just know that it hated me first before it ever hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Like if you acted like the world, if you partied like the world, if you had a great time like the world, if you believed and adopted all of the mindsets of the world, then the world would embrace you and celebrate you as one of its own. Jesus points out, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's the picture that Jesus is describing that we see all throughout scriptures, whether you're Noah and you're building a boat or Moses and you're trying to even free your own people, you face opposition. And amazingly enough, it still catches us all off guard. It's not just Stephen's audience that wrestles with this, but wouldn't we eventually get it? It appears that without the light coming, without the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling, no, we will all take off or stand our ground and fight. That it is easier in the heart of every one of us to rebel before we ever repent. And that's the kind of opposition that Jesus is warning his disciples that they are going to face. Verse 20, remember that the word that I said to you, a servant, is not greater than his master. It's not just some kind of a, hey guys, I want you to know that I'm better than you. That's not the context in which Jesus says it. Actually, Jesus says that I'm a servant and I've come here actually to serve you. And so if I'm here to serve you and I'm a greater than you are, then I want you to serve one another. The, the analogy that Jesus is having his disciples embrace is the fact that everything that I'm about to endure, everything that I'm about to go through, you should expect yourselves. And that's a hard truth when you're about to be nailed to a cross and your followers are about to scatter and they're going to have to rethink everything. Did I get something wrong? What do you do when you're scared? Rethinking everything. Did I miss something? Did I get something wrong? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, and they were really about to, they will persecute you also. Makes it very, very clear that the opposition that God has in the redemption and the restoration of the world, sometimes we can just kind of skip through the fact that, oh yeah, there was, a, there was a, sm a minor glitch that happened in Genesis 3. There was this couple, and they ate a fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. And then after that, God kind of cleaned it all up. No. That, that lie and that deception 
dug its heels into individuals and into cultures, into government systems and economic systems. It dug in and it did not want to go quietly away. And it would take nothing less than God putting on human flesh, Merry Christmas, living a perfect life, and then being persecuted and dying to redeem the creation that God had created and loved so much. Why are God's people persecuted? Because it is easier to live in darkness. It is easier for us, before we just cast it on anybody, it's easier for us to continue to live a self-deceived life. It is easier for us to live in darkness. It is easier for us to rebel than it is for us to repent. And therefore, we should not be surprised. We talk a lot about the great apostle Paul, and I love a statement that he makes. You know, we kind of think that as he's going through um, his life and his ministry, the Holy Spirit's directing him everywhere he goes. And we see it in Acts 16. The apostle Paul wants to go in one direction, but the spirit of Jesus keeps him from doing that, and he sends him to, to this wonderful city called Philippi. We sometimes forget that in the midst of these amazing conversions that are happening, he is also beaten and put in prison. And the Apostle Paul just is constantly dealing with this level of difficulty. And in one of my favorite sections of the book of Acts, we won't be there till later next year, but in Acts chapter 20, I want you to look at these verses. Turn to Acts chapter 20 and look at verses 22 and 23. He is speaking to some elders at a church in Ephesus where there's been difficulties. He's spent a lot of time there and he is now visiting with these elders as he is getting ready to go back to Jerusalem. They've kind of, they're on this retreat on this island of Miletus and they're there and he's speaking to them not knowing he will ever see them again. So the apostle Paul wants them to realize what, 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 is, what is happening and I think I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I don't know what's gonna go on there. And I need you guys to be prepared because the life of a Christian, the life of a follower of Jesus is not as um, predictable, it's not as easy. Since it's the road less traveled, few people, few people find it, Jesus says. Since it is the road less traveled, few people, Jesus says, are able to endure it. And you actually need the indwelling, the power of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of his word to be able to do that. So this great apostle Paul, being led by the Spirit everywhere, the apostle Paul says this about his journey, beginning in verse 22 of Acts 20. I'm going to Jerusalem, which in Luke's writings, not a lot of good things happen for the people of God in Jerusalem. I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing. Huh, that's kind of different for you, isn't it, Paul? Not knowing? Not knowing what will happen to me there. Now, he says that, but... Notice how he begins to explain what he means by that. I don't know exactly what's going to happen to me there. And then he says in verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies, bears witness to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I'm going to tell you I don't know what's going to happen there, but actually the Holy Spirit has made this clear. I will deal with imprisonments and I will deal with afflictions. And he's saying that to this group of men that are going to get back. 
together, and they're going to go back to Ephesus, and they're going to help a church, a church prepare for a level of difficulty and adversity. So can you imagine what it would have been like if the Apostle Paul was like, hey, by the way, I'm going on a cruise. It's going to be great. Like the, the, the last part of my ministry is going to be amazing. Um, I've got this great idea of setting up multi-campuses there in Jerusalem. It's going to be wonderful. And then these, these men go back to Ephesus and face nothing but hardship. How confusing that would be. So the Apostle Paul says, I really don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I do know this. The Holy Spirit is very honest with me about what happens when you live in the light and you expose darkness, when you speak the truth about our own brokenness, about our own rebellion, about everything that's happening around us, when you remind the world of its sin, and when you speak the truth about Jesus, afflictions, opposition, imprisonment is everywhere you go. So how are God's people persecuted? Well, honestly, the first way that we can look at this in terms of this text is they are, they are stoned, <laughs> They are killed. The Bible has num numerous examples of not only that, but people's possessions being taken. In the book of Revelation, actually, it's not even so much that they are killed, but that they are removed from the major aspects of society. They are forced to live in the margins and, and try to exist from there. That their confession about who Jesus Christ is is somehow so offensive and so bothersome that they lose their jobs or places of employment, in which case they now can no longer provide for their families. Like This is how persecution happens. I, I, I get it. I'm, I, I know that we so desperately want to try to find a place where we connect with the early church, that there can be a temptation for us to somehow try to find or, or, or label or explain some of the things that you and I go through, but... Truthfully, I can't stand up here right now in all honesty and to try to describe the things that you and I have gone through describing what we see in the book of Acts. But that doesn't mean we're not going through something. I had a friend of mine that was going through a pretty serious difficulty for him, but according to himself, he said, these are serious first world problems. And I said to him, sure, but they're still hard. I think the church in the, in the West, the church of today that, that you and I live in, we probably have made some serious misunderstandings when we, we wonder why is it that today when we live and today the church, well, when you say today, you mean today where you live. You mean today in this part of the world. I'm really grateful for the last few weeks where we've taken some time in corporate prayer. A number of weeks ago, in Drew's prayer, he went through a number of different examples where we, in our mind and, and by the Spirit, were transported to parts of the world that were facing serious opposition, real life, followers of Jesus Christ. They are our brothers and our sisters. We just don't know them by face or by name who are being killed and threatened and abused. There's never been a time in human history, ever, when God's people have not been attacked. And I don't expect that there ever will be a time where God's people collectively ever have a time of peace. 
It seems like God in his sovereign plan is moving and is shaping and is speaking. And wherever he speaks, things happen. And in much of the places of the world, even today, it is met with such fierce opposition. And I think it's just good to recognize that what we go through, the kind of difficulties that Jim has gone through, I I just, I can't in light of what I know of what others are going through right now, I can't with integrity, call it persecution. But it's not nothing. That right now, I I just, from my perspective, I get an increased awareness or a sense that there is a, a cultural seduction and a cultural opposition that is rising up and that is growing in the West. I'm really not one of those doomsday guys. I'm not here to say, and I promise you by the year 2020, no, no, no. I know less than the Apostle Paul. I don't know. I I don't know exactly how it's going to, but I don't think I'm wrong in saying that the things that we as Christians believe or confess about ourselves, the truth that we say about society, the truth that we say about like sin and brokenness and rebellion against God and his plan, the things that we say about this book and the things that we say about Jesus, that salvation is found in him and in him alone, are not popular. And they're becoming increasingly unpopular in the West. And I have to wonder, I've gone through all these stages, right? There's a text that Paul gives Uh, To Timothy, he says, anyone who lives a godly life will be persecuted. And when I was in junior high, I thought, that's my problem. I'm not living godly enough. And if I were to just live godly enough, I would be persecuted. That's how I would kind of reverse engineered that text. I don't think that's what that text is even describing, per se. I I don't think I need to feel, weirdly enough, I don't think I need to feel guilty that my life is not on the line this morning. I think I need to be grateful. I think I need to be aware I also think I need to be aware of of how our enemy, the one that is, in fact, undoing the work of God, he'll never be successful, but that we realize that there is a seduction, too, that fits. I've had to wonder, have you ever wondered this? Have you ever wondered why, like, persecution doesn't happen in parts of the world? Here's one way that some people have postulated as to the reason why is that sometimes you don't need to persecute because the people aren't dangerous enough. Because in the end, um, we can, we, we, when we speak the truth, we can learn how to be quiet or we can learn how to fit it in with certain kind of language and attitudes and behaviors to somehow not sound as offensive, to not sound, sound that much different from everybody else that when you kind of blend in, It's really hard to persecute. And I really believe that the church has always wrestled with this kind of cultural adaptation to avoid persecution. It's not what we see in the book of Acts. But God's people are harassed and God's people are threatened and God's people are excluded and God's people are shunned and God's people are persecuted. And we need to recognize the times in which we live. And then as Justin did this morning, ask God to give us an awareness 
of the circumstances in which we live so that we might rise up and by his strength endure, by his strength speak boldly. Lastly, how does this persecution affect the mission of God? You you would think that a good threat, like a real threat, a threat where your life was at stake, would somehow just stop it all, wouldn't you? Well, it didn't for John Allen Chow, I believe is how you say his last name. Have you picked up this feed recently? John Allen Chow, C-H-A-U. This morning, I wasn't reading in my Bible. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, an article of a young man, 26 years old, who grew up here in the States, who decided that there was an island, a rather um, difficult island, an island that it was illegal, actually, for any fisherman to be within five nautical miles of this island because these people are so violent and so against any kind of, of outsider ever intruding upon them. And John Allen Chow heard about this and decided, I need to go there to tell those people about Jesus. So he did. And they killed him. They filled him full of arrows for his good deed to share the good news there. He had to hire a gentleman who just went by the name of Mr. Alexander to take him by fishing boat to this particular island. And as he was getting close, he decided to write his family a note. And I want to read to you part of that. He said this, how does persecution affect the mission of God? Well, for John Allen Chow, it it really kind of didn't affect it at all. He, He didn't look at persecution or the possibility of him losing his life as though that was somehow going to stop or deter him. I know. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Here's what he wrote. You guys, thinking of his family and friends, you guys might think I'm crazy. Okay, can we be honest? Isn't what he is doing sound crazy? Like only in the book of Acts, right? You guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Interesting that the Wall Street Journal and CNN decided to run this story this week. That this man, and they're trying to get their heads around this, what would cause this young man to risk, and not just risk, to give, to sacrifice his life so that somehow he might declare Jesus to these people who, if they never hear about him, will never find real, ultimate, true, eternal life. Leonard Ravenhill actually said this many years ago, just describing the difference between the book of Acts as we see it, the early church, and what the church looks like today. And it's really one of those convicting statements. I had heard it before, and so it really kind of came to my mind in terms of for our lesson this morning. Leonard Ravenhill wrote this a number of years ago, by the way. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. I'm not just 
talking about some church somewhere, you know, probably in Texas. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about me. In the book of Acts, it is. It's poverty and prisons and persecution. And I, I don't think it's even right for us to somehow pat ourselves on the back and say, but we're not really prosperity people. We're not really personality driven. We're not really just looking for popularity. Really? Like maybe not as much as others, but really? You don't, you don't think that's influencing the way that we speak or don't speak? You don't think that's influencing the way that we organize ourselves and present ourselves? You think somehow we're completely unaffected? How does persecution affect the mission of the church? This is why it's so good for us to say, whether we want it or not, whether it's between Thanksgiving and Advent or not, we're dealing with this text. Like, we're here, and by the way, we're not here to feel bad about ourselves or even to feel guilty about the freedoms that we have. No, no, no. That is under the hand of God. Don't, don't, don't even try to find a path of excusing yourself because you feel really bad that you live in 2018 in America. No. That is under his hand. It is under his sovereign control and his divine direction. So you and I are here by some eternal purpose according to his plan. Therefore, you and I have an opportunity to learn from this text, to learn from people like John Allen Chow, so that we can be prepared to be used by God the same way that the early church did. Justin didn't read this text. But you know the next text? Verse 3 says, Saul was ravaging. That word is only found once in the entire New Testament. It's a word that's connected to a very popular Greek word, which just means to let loose. But it's, it's used also to mean to like let loose, like it's, like it's running out of control, like it's destroying itself. That's where we get that, that word ravaging. Paul is trying to speak about, to speak against, and to harass and to hurt people because he believes that if I cause enough outside pressure upon these Christians, they will cave. And so they persecute and Luke records in Acts 8, 4, I love this statement. Now those who were scattered went about what? What does it say? Say it. Preaching the word. <laughs> well, you thought you had us? Like you really thought that somehow, like did you not realize that when you nailed him to the cross, death could not hold him? Did you not realize that when you buried him in a tomb, that the tomb could not keep him? Did you not realize that he would send his spirit that would empower us? And that is true. I mean, I know it's hard to believe. Jesus says, it is better for me to go so that the Holy Spirit might come upon you. It is better for him to go so the Holy Spirit would empower the church. Every time the world thinks that by hurting and harassing, by seducing, it does not stop the mission of God. seems like for at least, I don't know about every one-to-one, -one, but it seems like for those even that are silenced, there's always a, a Jim Elliot or an Elizabeth Elliot. There's always going to be this John Allen Chow. There's going to be like an Austin and Amanda Gagneau. There's going to be a Jay and a Caitlin Greer. 
They're just going to go out, not knowing what is going to happen to them, not knowing about the difficulties of preaching the good news in northern Muslim-influenced Ghana or a very secular part of Japan. That wherever we go, as we scatter, we will preach the word there. See, 1 Peter tells us, and he is writing this text, what happens when the church is persecuted? What is the mission of God? What happens to it? Well, first of all, it totally shocks the world that someone like this John Allen Chow could somehow not be afraid. But Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice. But what happens when the church is persecuted? The faithful witness is that they rejoice. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When the church is persecuted, the church rejoices and the world is surprised and the mission continues. First Peter continues in verse 16. And yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Because that's what happens when we're persecuted. I, I mean, I know it looks wonderful, but when you're the one being attacked, when you're the one being isolated, when you're the one being excluded, when you're the one being oppressed, there's a tremendous amount of shame. Let him not be shamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That's why when you're John Allen Chow and you're writing your last letter to your family, you then say this. Please do not be angry at them. Those would be the people that killed him. Or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to. And I'll see you again. I'm telling you, it sounds crazy. Don't be angry at them. Don't be angry at God. If I die, just continue to live out your life in obedience to whatever God has called you. And don't ever forget, I'll see you again. See, that's what happens when the church is persecuted. It is not stomped out. It is not just pushed to the margins. Sometimes the margins become the best place to speak, the best place to witness. 1 Peter chapter 3 puts it this way in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have in you. And yet do so with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if, it, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
See, what Peter is describing to this church that is being harassed and is being persecuted is like, this is what happened to Jesus, and this is what you saw what happened to me, and this is what I told you could happen, and now what do we do? We give testimony. We give witness. That famous statement about being prepared to give an answer to anyone that asks you about the hope does not come in a complicated uh, philosophy class your freshman year of college. That's not the context. The context is the persecuted church. And when you're being persecuted and you're doing so rejoicing, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus. As, As I've watched culture shift because there was a time when the church stood stood center stage and we seem to like this and we seem to like our position of power and authority and speaking judgment to the world really it seems like for hundreds of years this seemed like the best position to be in and it's interesting that over a long period of time there have been those that have been kind of reduced to the margins of society. Maybe because they're struggling with their gender identification or their sexual orientation. It's been very interesting to just note as the the positions begin to shift, the one thing I can notice, even though I might disagree with their with their answers or with their conclusions. That whenever I would read about someone that I didn't even agree with, but whenever I would read about someone that was harassed or attacked violently, it just it felt wrong. It just, it, it didn't feel right. I, I somehow really became in my own heart and in my own mind rather sympathetic to the pain that they were going through, didn't you? And now as we begin to see a bit of a reversal of roles, can I just tell you, just speaking for myself here, I promise, I'm kind of glad that we now know what it feels like to be on the margins. And and personally, I'm not the one that's going to go try to fight back for center stage. I think I genuinely believe that the world, is it, or that the church, as it tries to reach that world, because it loves that world, and that world needs Jesus, that we don't just stand out here in the margins and complain all the time about it. And that we don't try to fight back for our pulpit. No, it seems like what Jesus did was from the margins. Love, turn the other cheek, Pray, he didn't seem weak to me. Suffer well. Tertullian said it, it's a very famous statement. What does the church do when it's persecuted? Ready, it grows. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So the world that thought they could somehow silence it or shut it up or get it to be quiet, no matter where it was, it just continued to be faithful because of God in it. One of the final words of John Allen Chow was this, God 
I don't want to die. See, I don't think he was crazy. He didn't want to die. But guess what he said right after that statement? God, I don't want to die because who will take my place if I do? Who will take my place? I don't know. I just know that he will stand in a long line of witnesses of men and women who did not love their own lives so much that they would shrink back. But by the power of the Holy Spirit would boldly speak and endure. And may that be said of us. May we prepare, not knowing exactly what's going to happen, but may we prepare so that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, I'm guessing from the margins, that we joyfully, with gentleness and respect, continue to fulfill God's mission through us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time and the power of this reminder. And I pray that you would be the one leading, guiding, and directing us. That God, for your glory and for your namesake, that the truth about you would be proclaimed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now as we gather around the table, I think it's good that uh, God has already provided a way in which the church, when it's really being the church, cannot escape the difficult truths that come by being a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper in which you and I will be reminded of what happened to our Savior when he spoke the truth about others and the truth about himself. Was it was not just warmly received, but it was opposed and he gave his life. And you might think to yourself, come on down. Um, when the tray is passed to you, if you are a follower of this Jesus, if you have in obedience joined with him, um, then I want you to take the bread and to take a cup and to hold it as we remember his death, which brought us life.